So two lessons that come from that. One, you should come to Sunday school. <laughs> it can be eventful. Um, I just passed out very briefly. Um, but I am back and I'm alive and I'm good to go. Um, and that's why Aaron's sitting over here, just to make sure I don't do it a second time. Um, but second lesson, this is from, Deal shared this with me earlier. I'm very grateful for it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, three times he pleaded with the Lord about this, this thorn that was in his side, that it should leave him. But he said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So as we go to his word, let us pray that the power of Christ would rest upon us, even in our weakness. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you. You who are all powerful, all good and all knowing, and use broken vessels and jars of clay to contain and embody, to embrace and to make known the greatest treasure available to mankind. It is a treasure that deserves far greater than what we can offer to house it, to contain it. And yet you have chosen to use the lowly, even as we read from Romans 3, those who have fallen short of your glory, yet to contain the inheritance that is Christ. And so, Lord, help us now as we go to your word. Keep us from error and help us to apply it well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all have experiences using things for reasons they were not intended. We somehow scoff for reasons that don't really make a lot of sense at user manuals, as though they in some way insult us, that they would tell us how we're to use a tool, thinking that we might come up with a better way than the inventor, some, some novel idea and way to use it, some MacGyver-like fashion. And while it can be fun at times, the reality is it can also be dangerous. So I remember watching Mary Poppins as a child. My brother and I were sitting in front of the television, watching, and I think learning only one lesson from Miss Poppins, and that was if you open an umbrella, you are made capable of floating for miles. So what did we do? We ran to the nearest closet, grabbed the first umbrella that happened to have a hole inside. Not that that actually matters. Ran to the tree, climbed up to our treehouse. And as the older, wiser brother, I went first, walking to the edge, opened the umbrella, and with so much confidence, leapt through the air. (laughs) Only to see the umbrella come upside down as I plummet to the ground. No major injuries by God's grace, but a lesson was learned. Tools used for reasons they were not intended can be dangerous. Oftentimes, though, it can be even lethal. So if you think of a doctor misreading or misusing results, or the captain of a ship misusing the navigation system, misunderstanding the purpose for which something was given, misusing something 
for reasons it was not intended can be dangerous. This was the confusion we find among the churches in Galatia as they're wrestling with what exactly the purpose of the Jewish law was to be for them. We'll see in our text the question that bursts forth, what then is the purpose of the law? Paul had taught them. Well, going back before that, they they knew that God required them to be righteous, perfect as he is. The question they could not get around was, how could they be righteous? You know, Paul had said that they would be declared righteous by faith, justified, declared righteous by faith apart from the law. But now these Judaizers had crept in and were saying that, yes, they need faith in Christ. But that wasn't finally complete. If, if they truly wanted to complete their justification, they would need to add to it. They would need to have faith and then add some works to some observance of the law. Baffled that these Christians could so easily be, de- be deceived by such false teaching. And the text that we considered last week, Paul really addresses it head on, somewhat aggressively, with a little bit of colorful language even. Angry, baffled, bewildered that they would so quickly turn from the truth, reminding them of the promise that God had given to Abraham. A promise to bless the nations through him. A promise to justify him by faith. And so bless the nations in the same way. And Paul is going to set out now to prove that this promise is permanent, unchanged by even the addition of the law. But that will necessarily beg the question, what then is the purpose of the law? So those will be our two main points this morning. The permanence of Paul's of God's promise and the law of God being merciful, purposeful. So you have the promise of God as permanent. The law of God is purposeful. And I want to start with that first point in our uh, Galatians chapter 3. Let's look here at verses 15 to 18. You can find that on page 1812 if you're using a pew Bible in front of you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Paul writes, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. So if you remember from our discussion last week, as we considered verses uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 14, Paul looked back to the promise that God had given Abraham in Genesis 12, that he would bless Abraham, as we've already said, and Through him, bless the nations. And Abraham believed God. And it was therefore credited to him. His faith, his belief was credited to him as righteousness. 
And this was a this righteousness then was the promise that God was giving to be extended not just to Abraham, but a righteousness, a justification that would be extended to the nations by faith to justify them by faith in what God had promised. So this was God. So, okay, so let me just summarize here the promise. And the, the promise was to justify the nations in Christ alone. And we see that there in verse 16. I'm mixing up in my notes here. Verse 16, Paul says that the promise to Abraham was to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ. So what he's doing is he's refuting the idea that the, the offspring to which this promise was to be extended was not just his physical descendants, anyone who descended from Abraham, his sons and descendants that came after him, but to one specific one, one specific offspring. That was to be Christ. This was the one in whom they would have faith, and this was the one through whom the promise would come. The promise of justification, of being declared righteous, was to come not by faith in Abraham. It was to come not by faith in being Abraham's descendants. It was not even to come by faith in or doing some amount of good deeds or works, certainly not by the law that would come later. It was to come by faith in the offspring, which was Christ. And this promise, Paul says, would not be changed. The nature of a promise, of a covenant, which is why he goes in verse 15 then, having considered all of that, to use this legal example, something that would be like a will in today's society. You know, right now, I, my will is not in full effect. I can change it. I can modify it. It has not been duly established or ratified in that sense. If I would have died when I passed out, you know, at that point, now my will is ratified, duly established, as Paul says. And when that happens, the will will be open, and whatever the contents of that document are, those contents will now be decreed. And neither my wife, nor my daughters, nor the judge can change what I have written in my will that has now been established. It is a guarantee. It is a sure thing. So Paul's saying if that is true of us, how much more unchanging then is the promise of God to Abraham? How foolish then would it be for us to think, as he says in Verse 17, that 430 years later, nearly half a millennium, God would add something to the promise he made previously that would in some way alter the way God intended to bring about his promise. That God would undermine his own promise that he gave to Abraham. That it could change the the nature of his promise. This is, in a sense, the economy of God, the, the, the guarantee that he would justify by faith. So the addition of the law later could not usurp the promise that he gave to Abraham. A promise cannot be altered or nullified when it comes from God, no matter what comes after, even if that's a law. So he says in verse 18, for if the inheritance depends on the law, in other words, if he were to change the means, change the method by which the promise would come to pass, if it were to depend on the law now, then it no longer depends on a promise. He has changed the method. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So you can see he's refuting that they would ever think God could contradict himself. Instead, he says he gave it to him as a promise. But then that's the nature of a will, isn't it? It's a one-way transaction. 
It is a guarantee from one to another. But what do you do in order to inherit what has been willed to you, bequeathed to you? How, how hard, how much do you contribute in order to ensure that, that what was willed to you actually comes to you? Or what work do you do to make sure that you earned what they decided to give you? You can't even work to keep it in the will, let alone to have earned receiving it in the first place. So what Paul is saying is, no, the work was all done by another. They built the house that you inherited. They purchased the land. They kept the property. They maintained it. They did everything. And then they promised to give it to you. You merely trusted their promise. You trusted their promise and that it would be yours as you awaited its arrival. In that sense, promises are not earned. They're trusted. The promises are not earned. They're trusted. Now, this is not to say, so just to be clear, this is not to say that recipients of an inheritance, of this inheritance, being one, being a recipient, has no implications on your life. It has clear implications on your life. And Paul's going to spend much of the last third of Galatians detailing what those implications are, how you then should live as one who has inherited this promise, this justification. But what Paul is getting at is not how you should respond but how you come into the inheritance, how you are brought into the will. Then he'll say how you respond to it in the next few chapters. So this is, that's what Paul is getting at. God's promise to justify the nations by faith has been ratified and therefore cannot be changed, cannot be nullified and cannot be added to. And God will not go back on his word. And so you have Numbers 23, 19, a wonderful verse to think about this. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Unlike man, God lacks no foresight. God planned out salvation history before the earth even began. He knows the the end from the beginning. So there is no promise made of God that he cannot bring to pass. Nothing can threaten to thwart the completion of what God has ordained to come. So if you are united with Christ by faith, God's promise does not depend on your strength to maintain it. God's promise does not depend on your strength to maintain it. It depends entirely on Christ who secured it and guaranteed it for you if you have faith in him. It is to be received by faith and will be kept by him. As Philip Ryken said, salvation then in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. Salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. A permanent promise. One not only true of Abraham, but one that has been true of you and of me if we have faith in Christ. But then this also means that if you stop holding fast to that faith, if you turn from it and start adding, start trying to contribute to it, start trying to 
improve it or in some way assume that you now need to bear some of the responsibility of making yourself righteous. You are in effect making God out to be a liar. Declaring his promise as insufficient. You live like God is not true to his promise. It's no small thing, no insignificant thing to say, I have faith, but God requires my works too. Whether that's reading the Bible or obeying the Ten Commandments or having a particularly godly afternoon, whatever it is that you start to depend upon, those things are good to do and the Bible calls us to do them. But what he is getting at here is if you start replacing your confidence before God of your standing of righteous by replacing faith with those things, this is proving his promise to be untrue and calling, saying that God actually contradicts himself. But it also means that when you feel the weight of your sin, when it starts to feel so utterly unbearable, and you actually know yourself to be unrighteous to the point that you, you think it's impossible for God to actually love you as you are if you come to him in faith, then you have two options. You abandon it and despair, or you cling to this promise, trusting that God will prove true to count you righteous by faith in Christ. God is not to deal with you according to your personal account, but according to the righteous account of his son. And if you are truly in Christ, there is nothing that can be added or removed from that promise. His love is therefore complete. God is not fickle like us. And we, we quickly start to personify him as our boss who fluctuates with emotions and one day loves us and the next day wants to fire us. Or a, a fickle relative or a relationship of some kind. But God is not volatile in that sense. He is not changing. He does not love us one day and despise us the next. Because his love for us is rooted in Christ whose perfection does not change. It is grounded in him. And brothers and sisters, this confidence that God not only gave us this promise but will bring it to completion and has fulfilled it in Christ, as we'll consider in a moment, and it will find its final fulfillment when Christ returns, where we will reap the reward of this inheritance, the hope in that reward of the inheritance. That has fueled saints throughout the ages to persevere through trials of many kinds. A perseverance that would be good for us to consider as we think of Hebrews 11:1, which defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's a faith and the glorious inheritance that awaits. An inheritance that is to come, allowing us to persevere until that day when we finally receive it. So I mentioned a few weeks ago that I've been listening to the book Unbroken which has been a fascinating read, or listen, I guess. It's an audiobook. Uh, but where I'm at right now, the main character, Louis, has been a prisoner of war for over two years. Okay, And he's been beaten, bruised, and nearly starved to death. And his captors just took him on a march through the wilderness. 
a march that he's assuming is likely to end in his own death. But as they're marching, suddenly a plane flies overhead. And they look as it circles back to see what kind of plane it is. And then they see it, an American symbol. It's an American flag. And so as they look from the plane and they look down to their captors, they see they're gone. They've disappeared and suddenly it dawns on them. The war is over. They are free. But a problem remains. There is but one plane and hundreds of men. And so Louis realizes that for at least a few days, he will have to stay in enemy territory. And during the same elements and the same limited rations as he awaits the final deliverance. And yet, even though his circumstances had not changed, the promise of the deliverance to come allowed him to write two words in his journal that night. I'm free. He knew he had been freed. It had not reached its full fruition or its full fulfillment. Deliverance was yet to finally come, but the war had been won and his deliverance was guaranteed as a promise. And friends, we have a promise that is guaranteed, one that was fulfilled in Christ, but one that is still yet to find its fullest fulfillment when Christ returns and gives to us his heavenly reward. This and, and though that is true, we do remain in enemy territory. The war is over. Christ has won. And yet the full reward of your. Of this promise. Is yet to come. When Christ will present us as righteous before God. I wonder if you cling to God's promise like this. If. God's promise is this securing for you. You know, when you're at school and students mock or bully or tease, you're left out for not participating in the same activities that they do. We remember that the enemy's time is limited. We've been guaranteed a far greater reward, a far more lasting reward than popularity will ever offer. And that reward is sure to come. Or when you have that bad doctor's diagnosis. It is the promise that God has made that we have hope in that he that his promise will not fail and he fail and he will bring it to completion. It is sure and true. And he who has given you his very son to purchase this freedom for you will work all things together for the good of those who love him. And are called according to his purpose. This is Paul's confidence in Romans 8 when he says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we need to note where that love of God is rooted. He says in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it is a promise that is guaranteed for all who would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus alone by faith. But then if this promise was in no way altered by the law, as Paul says, 
The question remains, what then was the purpose of the law? We have a promise held out to us that is sure and unchanging, and yet God did give a law 430 years later. So why did he give it? What was the purpose? And this is the question Paul turns to next in verses 19 to 25. This will be our second point. God's, the, the, purpose, the law of God is purposeful. And what, I'm gonna, what I think Paul brings to light is that its purpose is actually not to change the promise, but to support the promise by exposing our sin so as to drive us to Christ. By exposing our sin to drive us to that promise, to keep us faithful to it. So let's read verse 19 to 25. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So Paul answers our burning question. What then is the purpose of the law? Short question, he gives a short answer. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law was added to expose our sin, to reveal our sin and actually provoke it to reveal our to manifest our sinfulness. So that it would display itself even more. So an example of this, my wife and I have been trying to teach my daughter to share. As much as I love my daughter, the reality is there is a part of her that is selfish. But what would it serve my daughter? You know, how, how aware would she become of her selfishness if we never told her she had to share and we never let, we let her hoard all of her toys in her room and we never let her sister come in? She would be oblivious. It would not change the fact that selfishness existed within her, that she was by nature selfish. But it would not be until I gave the law, the requirement, the instruction that she share and then present the circumstance in which she had to, that suddenly it would expose or provoke what sinfulness already existed so that it would reveal to her her flaw, her sin. In that sense, it's like sin is this hibernating bear of rebellion, and then the law comes in as this kind of meal that provokes it to life. It, it comes forth ready to devour. This is why the law was added, to expose our sin and make clear our inability to save ourselves. But according to Paul, the purpose of the law was actually given an end point. 
it was given, as he says, until the seed. The seed who we previously concluded was Jesus. Until the seed to whom the promise referred, the promise of Abraham referred to the seed, referred to Jesus until he had come. So this is the key. Here is a summary to these verses. Paul says the primary purpose of the law was not to set aside or add to or in any way nullify the promise of justification by faith, but rather the primary purpose of the law was to protect God's people by exposing their sin in order to keep them from turning to anything else. The primary purpose of the law was to protect God's people by exposing their sin to keep them from turning to anything else but faith in Christ. So as John Calvin said, the law was given in order to rouse men to the expectation of Christ. Now I want to make a quick aside here. The law, as, as Paul's getting at, what, what Paul's been arguing for the whole letter is an argument of justification by faith. So when he's talking about the purpose of the law, he's not saying this is the exclusive and only purpose or that there is no longer room, as I mentioned earlier, reason for us to give value or, or merit to our doing good things. Paul says for the, the last third of the book that this is exactly what being made righteous will produce is these good works. The law actually reveals to us how we should go and live. But what Paul is focused on here is justification, how we are made righteous. And he says the law for that purpose, it was primarily given to ensure that we did not stray from the only means of justification, namely justification by faith in Christ. Rachel, my wife, shared this great illustration yesterday of a wedding engagement. You know, you have an engagement that begins with a promise. But between the time of your promise and the actual wedding, there is this season of engagement. But everyone knows the season of engagement was never meant to be an end in itself. It was never meant to be the final end. It was actually to prepare you for the arrival of the wedding. And to keep you faithful to that promise that you made, you were, you were given a ring. A ring is added to the promise. Something that reminds you and helps to rouse you with expectation, as Calvin said, for that day to come. That, Paul says, is the reason for the law. And just to underscore the superiority then of the promise over that law, like the wedding over the engagement, Paul highlights the difference in how each of them was given, how they were administered. So you see that there in verses 19 and 20. Paul says, whereas the promise was given directly from God to Abraham, the law had to pass through angels and a mediator. His point primarily being it would be foolish then to think the law somehow usurps the promise or in any way is on the same level as the promise. It is inferior in that sense, only a supporting cast, a supporting character, which prompts the question, is the law therefore opposed to God? If the law is inferior and adds nothing, then is it against God? To which Paul responds, absolutely not. In fact, the law, as he says in verse 22, actually helped Israel to receive the promise of justification by faith by 
imprisoning the whole world under sin. So let me see if I can... He uses an illustration in verse 23 to explain this. So let's try to unpack that illustration to see what he means. Verse 23. Paul says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So by faith, Paul's referring not to just general faith, but to the very specific object of faith, which is Christ. The seed that was to fulfill the promise given to Abraham, as he says here. But until that seed came, until Jesus came, he says the law served as this type of prison. As the prison and the prison guards, and we were placed in it. We're inmates there. The walls and the guards around us are guarding us to keep us there. And we've been given this promise of a future deliverance. But it is a promise to be received by faith. So God placed us here in this prison in this in order to because he knows our tendency to abandon this faith and to think that we have what it takes on our own. In fact, we maybe have heard stories of others who have escaped on their own. And so we start devising our own plan, thinking we'll venture out on our own deeds. And then one day the plan comes together and we decide today's the day. And so we take off for the exit and we run into a guard after a guard, after a guard, until we reach the wall of the prison that seems utterly insurmountable. And it's at that point the law once again reminds us, exposes to us, our inability to save ourselves. It brings us to an end in our own self-righteousness and drives us back to faith in the one to come, who will deliver, which was the whole purpose of the sacrificial system in the first place. It was always to remind Israel of their sin and their need for a substitute to keep them conscious of the expectation of their coming Savior. That's why we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This was the song of Israel waiting, desiring their Savior to come, who would ransom them from sin. The law then was given to carry us from the promise given to the promise fulfilled. It was the guardrails that kept us in the lane of faith as we awaited the journey's completion. The guardrails that keep us in the lane of faith as we await the journey's completion. And this, Paul makes even more clear in his second illustration, verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. It was our guardian, our disciplinarian, like someone put in charge of rearing us as a child to continue to drive us, to stop us from going astray and drive us back to faith in Christ until Christ came. That we would stay, remain hopeful in our justification being by faith. So the law's purpose was not to be used as an instrument of righteousness but actually is an instrument of grace. The law was given as an instrument, not of righteousness to be our source of righteousness, but to be a source of grace, a gift given to keep us from looking to ourselves for righteousness. And so that we might continually be driven to faith in Christ. So Paul concludes in, in verse 25 though, Now that faith has come, that Christ has come, we are no longer under the supervision 
of the law. For if the law's purpose and that primary purpose in that sense was to keep us until Christ came, now that Christ has come, we need no longer look to it. We no longer need to use it to point us to Christ. We need only to look to Christ to whom the law pointed. Friends, this in, in, in effect is the gospel. This whole section of Galatians is the gospel, the good news that God Though he made us in his image to image him perfectly. He saw as we see in ourselves that we are not holy as he is holy. Though he requires that of us. Though he requires us to be without sin as he is. We see as the as Romans 3 that we read earlier revealed. And as the law itself exposes that we have fallen short of the glory of God. So each one of us is in need of a savior. But then God promised that Savior would come in the form of a seed, would come to justify the nations by faith. And that Savior would be his very son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come and would live the life required of us. The perfect life the law demanded. And when he died on the cross, he actually took on himself the punishment for our failure to do so. The curse of the law, the curse of sin. For anyone who would ever turn from their sin and trust in him. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and defeating death. And he now offers righteousness to all who would receive it by faith. Fulfilling all of the law's demands and then offering that righteousness to us. So as Paul concludes in verse 29, as we'll consider next week, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Friend, if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus like this. If what I just described to you is not something you believe. Then I want to ask you how you plan to deal with your sin. Would you agree with the Bible's assessment, the universal conclusion that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God? None of us is perfect. All of us have gone astray. If you understand that, God then is revealing it to you, not so you can continue as you are, but so that it will drive you to your need for a savior, so that you will turn from your sin and trust in him for salvation, that you will feel the weight, not that you would try to fix it, not that you would try to clean yourself up first but so that you would come to Jesus as you are and allow him to do that in you. But then for each one of us in the room, I think we should take note at how positively Paul speaks of the law. It is a gift from God. It was intended as a glorious gift, not to be misused, but when used rightly to expose our guilt so that we would ourselves flee to a savior. And then after being saved, declared righteous, live in a manner that pleases him in response. The law then, by exposing our guilt, is infinitely more loving than if it were to simply pretend that we live in no imminent threat in our sin. So as society moves toward an increasingly politically correct standard, as as tolerance is championed and affirmation of others as they are, continues to be the voiced solution. 
do recognize that part of how you love your neighbor as yourself is not by affirming their sin and pretending that it puts them at no threat before God. Any more than how you love your child when they run into traffic is to snatch them from danger and to tell them what they're doing is leading down a path of destruction. We should warn in love, but we should warn. That doesn't mean we run around condemning people all the time and speaking words of condemnation. It just means that we do not affirm them in their sin or fall victim to culture's requirement to do so. For if you continued falsely affirmed in your sin, what would have ever compelled you to turn to Christ? Unless someone shared the gospel with you. But then perhaps more important for us this morning is to ask ourselves where we are, re- are tempted to turn back to the law. Where it is that we look to the law for righteousness. I wonder what laws you tend to impose on yourself. This week, what, what will be tempting for you to not find your confidence finally resting in the promise of God of justifying you by faith in Christ, but to start adding to that, uh, rooting your confidence in justification in something else? I listened to one pastor who said that he is tempted toward the law of productivity even, and that he will base his contentment or his confidence in how productive a day was. You know, for me, it's, it's frequently the law of perception. You know, evaluating at the day's end how people perceive what I did or the conversation we had or, and based on that, start to assume God's pleasure in me is increasing or decreasing. But then that just puts us on a roller coaster. With each law fulfilled in our minds, we're at a spiritual high, a peak. And then with each law failed, we come plummeting back to the ground. But what God has laid out for us is not a spiritual roller coaster, but a steady and stable confidence and a love that is rooted in the perfection of his son that then prompts us to go and live rightly as his word requires, but does not in any way base itself on that living. Do you realize how when you put these laws in your life, you are not only misusing, but utterly abusing its intended purpose and friends if we are going to fully understand the gospel we need to first understand what the law exposes namely our unholiness our unrighteousness the very reason that we that that a prideful christian is itself an oxymoron it is incompatible that a christian would be prideful because A Christian understands themselves to have contributed nothing to their salvation of their own merit. And having been brought to the depths of themselves is the only reason and source for them ever turning to Christ who did it all for them in the first place. The law empties us of self-righteousness and undermines our ability to gain righteous standing by our deeds. But it is from that broken state that we are driven to Christ in faith who adds everything and declares us utterly and entirely righteous in God's sight. And we praise be to God for this. So this week, consider what it would look like at your job to work not to to work as a unto God, but not to gain God's approval.
uh, to work to bring glory to God. But not as a source of your righteousness. Or when you parent your children, you do so not because the results of your child, how they are raised, finally affects your standing with God. But because God has declared you righteous and you want to go now and respond by by bringing glory to him and how you parent and and seeking to bring your children to that same hope that you have come to find. We want to remember in closing those opening comments about how deadly the misuse of something can be. God's law was never meant to be used to obtain our righteous standing before him. And if that is how we use it, we actually only prove ourselves to be transgressors. But when we understand the purpose rightly, then it can bring life. Understanding the purpose of the law was the very source of guarding and disciplining and finally keeping the saints until Christ came. The promised seed, the fulfillment of the promise that God was sure to bring to completion. Would we be marked by those driven to Christ and holding fast to the promise that is permanent? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would do this work in us. That you would drive us to faith in your son. We praise you for the gift of salvation by faith in him and pray that you would bring it. Or that you would help us not to stray from it. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen.